to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning again, Taproot. Um, my name is Will. I'm one of the, the elders here, and I'm excited and honored to get to sit under the Word of God with you this morning. We're in, we're in this series called Speaking the Sadness. We're looking at Lament. We're looking at more specifically the Psalms of Lament. We're, like we said earlier, Taproot exists to make disciples. And a disciple is one who radically reorients his life around Jesus. And part of being a disciple is learning the disciplines of the faith, the disciplines of Christianity. So we, we thought it wise to, to go through this, this series, Speaking the Sadness, the Psalms of Lament, as a means to hopefully better learn this Christian discipline of lament. Tracking so far? Um, so, we're going to pray and get started. Um, yeah. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for the beauty and the honesty, the complexity, the richness, um, the, 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 the breadth and the depth of your word. As we study it, as we apply it, as we sit under it, as we look to it, God, we know that your spirit is going to cause us to flourish, to become more fully human. Holy Spirit, you have been working in our fellowship. You have been, um, even just that last song, God, we felt your Holy Spirit moving through uh, the songs of your people. And so now, God, we are asking you to work in the preaching of your word. Um, Not because of any amount of skill or eloquence or uh, trendiness or or bright putting things together, um, but solely on the basis of your love for us and your desire to see us flourish. So God, we worship you um, through sitting under your word. And it's for your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Taproot normally does uh, what some people call exegetical preaching, and we, we pick a, bo- a book, and we start in verse 1, and we do a sermon about the first couple of verses, then we move linearly to verse, for our sake, 5 through whatever, and we do a sermon, and we, we start at the beginning of a book and go to the end of the book, and that's how generally we do our sermon series, and that's what most of us are accustomed to if you've been coming to Taproot for any amount of time. For this series, we're, we're taking a little bit of a different approach. Um, we're, we're, we're preaching from the Psalms. We're not, we're not going to sit and go verse 1 to verse in linearly um, like we're used to say in 1 Corinthians is one that I'm sure we all remember. Um, for this sermon series, we're looking at the Psalm as a whole, and we're, we're picking a property of lament, a property of the discipline that we're wanting to learn. We're going to look at that discipline in the psalm and, and, start, and make that our starting point as we explore um, the psalm together. Yeah. Just because I thought it would be helpful to try to sort of define lament for us, because how many of you guys use the word lament? How many of you guys used the word lament last week uh, outside of talking about the sermon? That's what I thought. Uh, me too. Um, we don't, it's not a word we, we really use. It's not a word we're comfortable with using. So for our purposes, uh, lament is expressing grief or sorrow over what is wrong or broken or painful in the world. So as we say lament, that's, at least for today, that's what we mean. Um, So this this sermon series, we've been looking at the properties of lament. Uh, The first one was the the language of lament. What is it that we say in lament? Um, Then Glenn preached on the direction of lament, what What or whom or how are we saying it to? What direction do these words go? Um, Then Darren preached on the awareness of lament. What should our lamenting see? What should our eyes see and lament in our community, in our surrounding, in our world? Today, we're going to talk about the posture of lament. Um, It's going to be the the attitudes or the um, approaches that we take in our lamenting. So with that, let's, let's dive into the psalm, get a little background, and then we'll get, we'll get cooking. Um, so, Brittany read that introduction for us. The, to the choir mas- master, a masquil of the sons of Korah. 
So that word, maskil, is an interesting word. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I read a ton of commentaries that were super unhelpful. And then I met with Glenn, and Glenn is much smarter than me and no smart guy stuff. So he helped me understand the word, I, I think, really well. Um, that, that word maskil, I think, confidently think, it refers to, uh, it's, it's cueing us up that the psalm is for specifically our instruction. Uh, it's, it's a word that is, is, is letting us know, hey, we're trying to teach you something in this psalm. This isn't just a song. This isn't just a prayer of the people. I mean, it isn't just the sons of Korah expressing lament to God, but it's also the sons of Korah teaching us something about expressing lament to God. And so that's, that's going to determine our direction quite a bit as we, as we work through the psalm. Um, another thing I wanted to, to talk about, uh, all right, Bible, what's it called? Sword drill? Bible drill? How many of us have ever heard of, in any way, the sons of Korah, besides the Marcel band? Wasn't that a Marcel band or something? All right, some of us. Who knows who, knows who they daddy is? Anybody? Who knows who their dad is? Cora. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, ah, oh, I should have said it. Who knows who Cora was? Anybody? What's funny is most of us will once I tell the story. Cora is, is this guy in, in sort of the Exodus period of Israel who rebels against Moses, says, Moses, you're not doing a good job. We're going to do better. We're going to overtake you. We're done with you. And God literally opens up the ground and eats him. Him and his whole army, his whole rebellion is squashed when God opens up the ground and all these guys are destroyed. So, with the sons of Korah, I want us to put ourselves in their shoes. Let's not just look at them as some fact or some historical figure, but let's together try to put ourselves in the shoes of of. These, these two guys. Imagine with me if your dad was the biggest traitor in the, in the recent history of the nation of Israel. Your dad was the guy that God physically opened up the earth to destroy. Your dad was, was the guy that said, you know what, Moses, the guy that's clearly God, God's leader for our people, I'm done with you. And he was crushed. There's a lot of, I would imagine, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of fear. If, if God destroyed your dad, if, if God destroyed your family, your mom, someone close to you, even if God was right in doing it, could you imagine the fear that that would spring up in you of God? Um, as many of you guys know my story, my parents are not, are not saints. My parents hate the idea of God. They hate Christianity. But if, if God destroyed them, that would, that would cause trouble in my soul. That would hurt deeply. That would, that would make me question God a lot. Um, imagine the shame uh, these sons of Korah face every day being that guy's kid. Oh, you're that guy's kid. You're Korah's kid, huh? You're the traitor's kid. You're, you're the examples, kid, huh? Um, the, the reason I bring this up, as I was kind of sitting in this, I realized in a, in a much smaller degree, 
I can kind of relate with them a little bit just thinking about my own father. My own dad uh, was, was well-known in the community. Um, and then after becoming well-known in the community for being such a good employee and manager at this big uh, canning facility, uh, became a very public alcoholic. He became, uh, later in life, a very, very public drug user. He became a, a, someone known in the community as being abusive to his family. Um, and so that did two things to me. On, in the front of uh, me being in my hometown, everyone knew my dad, and I could, whether they were or not, I could feel them looking at me through the lens of my dad. I could feel that, oh, you're, you're Bill's kid. Poor sucker. Again, whether they were saying it or not, I, I felt it. Um, I, I could feel the shame of knowing my dad's failures, my, my dad's sins that were very public. Um, on another front, it, it was, the difficulty was my actual relationship with my dad. Um, for almost all of his life. Now, my dad did, did um, I believe, get saved right at the very end of his life amidst a lot of mental, his, his mind was gone, um, was, was going, and just before that time, um, I believe, I hope, came to Jesus. But for m- most of my life, I didn't have a functioning relationship with my dad. Um, he, was, he was home, but he left a long time ago. Um, he was drunk, he was abusive, and so I didn't have that role model. I didn't have that relationship. I didn't have that source of love in my life. And so honestly, I knew intellectually when someone said, God is a father and he loves you, I knew intellectually what they meant, but I had no basis to understand emotionally what that was. Um, I I agreed with it theologically, but in my practice with, with my relationship with God as my father, I had no idea what I was doing. There was, there was a relational brokenness between me and God that I inherited between me and my father. And so if this is some of the same things that, that the sons of Korah were dealing with, and, and I think to at least an extent they'd have to be, right? If, if they're dealing with some of these things, it really makes what they write in this psalm, in almost every line, just astounding. These people whom God crushed their father, they say, God, you, you've abandoned us. You're, you're, you're not with us anymore. You, you've made us a byword. You've made us a nothing among the nations. You've embarrassed us. There's this line about, you sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. That's sort of an allusion to, God, you're treating us like slaves. This is a people that were removed from Exodus. Slavery was not some far-off thing for them. It was something that they felt. They were still feeling the effects of. And the sons of Korah say this line. It's, that's terrifying. I, I could not have done that with my God. Um, I'm, there's still this trepidation and fear in me to ever speak. Like, honestly, right? There's this trepidation in us that says, no, I will never say anything like that to God. And then yet, they say things like, God, our forefathers told us. 
all the good things you've done, how you drove out the enemies from the promised land and you, you helped us in. God, you're good. At the same time, they're saying, God, you disgraced us. And then they have this line and they say, but we're clinging to you, right? We've done nothing. We're not, we're not leaving you. We haven't done anything wrong to bring us into this place. And we're not going to, to rebel against you, even though things aren't going the way that we thought they would. The sons of Korah are an incredible, uh, incredible people to look at. Um, so, like we just did, I'm going to use a parallel relationship as we talk about relating to God through lament. I'm going to use parallel relationships because I think, for me, that was the most helpful thing, honestly, in studying this text, was to think in a parallel fashion, well, if my relationship with my wife is like this, that gives me a starting point to understand my relationship with God this way. If my relationship with my daughter, my, my relationship with my friend would create this dynamic. It gives me a helpful starting spot in understanding the interplay with my relationship with God. So we're going to return to that parallel probably often in this sermon. Um, so let's look at the posture of lament that, that the sons of Korah took because they say things that you think would get them killed, right? Like their, their dad said things like this and the earth ate him. Um, and yet they say things like this and it's wholly inspired scripture written to teach us. So the, the conclusion that we've drawn is there's something in the posture, the posture of their heart, the posture of obedience, the posture of their humility um, that allows them to say these things and it's actually good that they say them. So we're going to look at the posture of lament as being honest. Um, so in this in this psalm, there's a really uncomfortable dissonance between God, we heard our forefathers tell us all these great things. God, you protected us. We won the battle and it wasn't even by our own sword. You won the battle for us. And then over here, God, you've disgraced us. Like, how can those be in the same psalm? There's this uncomfortable dissonance in those psalms that they seem to be fine with. And to be honest, I'm not, right? It's a place of wrestling. It's a place of what is, is going on here. I think we see from them there's an intellectual honesty, there's an emotional honesty at the same time happening. It is easy in times of suffering to become intellectually dishonest. It is easy in times of suffering to conveniently forget all that God has done in the past like it never happened. And how many of us have been in that place of things go terribly? Um, the house forecloses, the baby dies, the relationship breaks, you go bankrupt. And in that moment, and it's not like you're, you're taking a physical action to forget, but in that moment, all the past faithfulness of God just disappears. It's like it never happened in your own soul, in your own mind. Something that is so easy, we don't even try to do it, and yet it happens so much of the time in our own struggling. But the sons of Korah, there's this intellectual honesty saying, I'm not going to forget. And I'm not going to write off what our forefathers told us about your faithfulness. 
It still stands true. I was there for that. I felt that. I will not deny that. I will not forget it. I will not forsake it. Uh, there's, a, there's another um, place where we can become intellectually dishonest. And it's, it's denying God's power or God's sovereignty or however you want to say that. It's denying God's sovereignty in the present suffering. It's, it's easy for us at a, at a church like Taproot, we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. Um, but in the place of suffering, it's very, very easy to go, well, God was somehow out of control. He wasn't, he wasn't in the driver's seat when, when this suffering happened to me. Um, so it's, it's not really a spiritual thing. It just happened. Um, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not something God had a direct influence on or God was, was overseeing. So therefore, just forget about it. It's not spiritual. I'm not going to treat it spiritual. That's something physical that happens and I'll have my spiritual life over here. But what you see in the psalm is they hold to God, you are good. You won that battle for us, not by my bow, not by my sword. And yet they still hold to God, these terrible things have happened and we know that you had power over them to stop them. Um, for, for Emily and I, you guys heard our story a few weeks ago. One of the hardest questions we had to ask, and to be honest, we have not received an answer. One of the hardest things to ask was, God, I'm convinced of your sovereignty. If you didn't want us to miscarry, we wouldn't have. Um, you could have stopped that. And, and you didn't. Why? And it would have been easy for Emily and I to deny God's power and God's working and just say, well, that was something medical that God didn't have any hand on um, and, and put it in this little compartment and not deal with it and move on. Um, and I think the sons of Korah are teaching us we, we can't do that. We can't, we can't take cheap steps to get rid of this dissonance. Um, the, the other thing we see is there's an emotional honesty in the sons of Korah. Um, so the, the, the first place I think that it's easy to become emotionally dishonest in our suffering is to just numb out, right? Stuff's going bad. Uh, Your heart is heavy. Things are terrible. I'm just not going to feel anymore. I'm just going to die inside. It's safer. It's easier. I'll just get through it. Grin and bear it. Um, What we're doing there is when we numb out like that, we want to avoid this appearance of weakness. And so we, we'd rather just appear strong and not let things hurt us and let our hearts die rather than um, what I would argue is true strength, allowing things to hurt us and allowing God to heal us, allowing God to sometimes physically pick us up and carry through, carry us through that suffering. So we, we want the appearance of strength more than we want actual strength. And so we numb out, we die inside, and just hope the storm passes eventually. Not dealing with our hearts, not dealing with our minds, not dealing with any of it. We, we just don't want to be the needy one. Um, but here's the thing, in your relationship with God, the way it's designed, friend, brother, sister, 
we're always the needy one. That's just how it works. It's good. It's not comfortable, but it's good. The other way we become emotionally dishonest is escaping this, this dissonance between suffering and goodness. We escape it by becoming angry. Rather than sitting in this uncomfortability of, God, you're good, and terrible things are happening, and I don't know how to reconcile them, we become angry at God. Um, and I don't mean this angry at God like I'm going to walk out, like I, I just decided to stop being a Christian. I mean angry at God like, I know that I can't stop being a Christian, but I'm going to say things to try to make you leave me. I'm going to tell you like it is. You're not good anymore. Right? It plays into that intellectual honesty. Um, we, we try to do whatever we can to make God be the one who leaves, right? Um, I think this plays out a lot in... <laughs> in marital conflict, both in my experience and in my counseling, there's, there's something in us that wants to say the harsh thing so that the other one leaves and you can say, see, you left. And we try to, we try to play that game with God to escape sitting in this dissonance, sitting in this uncomfortability between goodness and suffering. Um, but what we're doing there is we're, we're saying that hard thing to create some distance, right, in our relationships with each other. We say that hard thing to create that distance, to, to kind of push them away. And then we do it again to push them away even more. And then we do it away to push them away even more until one day your heart's gone. You've created so much distance that the relationship is not there anymore. It's, it's the slow, subtle process of withdrawing our hearts from one another by not sharing with one another. Um, here's the thing. Honesty is, is hard because it, it admits that we don't have answers. Honesty is hard because, brother, sister, you have to look weak. You have to say, I don't know. You have to say, God, this seems true, and also this seems true, and I have no idea how to reconcile those two things. See, false stability seems safe, but it removes the need for honesty, and in removing that need for honesty, it damages the relationship. It's true in our friendships, in our marriages, and even in our parenting relationships, it's true in our relationship with God. So we have to overcome this fear of being the weak one. We have to overcome this fear of being seen as weak. So another, another step um, is to look at their posture of lament as being relational. So imagine that you are the perfect spouse or the perfect friend or the perfect parent or the perfect brother or sister. Um, so now some of you think you are already the perfect whatever and you guys need to wake up. But um, So you are perfect. You're not bound by fear and shame and sin and any of that. You're, you're totally focused. You're totally loving. You're totally open. You're totally honest. Now imagine this, something terrible happens in 
your wife's life, your brother's life, your friend's wife, your husband's, whoever the opposite party is from you, something terrible has happened. Um, and they blame you. They are convinced that you are responsible. Let's say worst case scenario, they are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are the sole reason why this bad thing has happened. Being perfect, not being held back by fear and shame and sin, would you rather them come talk to you or would you rather them keep it to themselves until they can phrase it in a better way? Right? We, we want them to come to us, right? In their yelling, in their confusion, in, in their having their perspective that's really hard. Right? If I wasn't bound by my own shame and, and regrets and fear and insecurities, I would want Emily to come at me and yell at me. Why? Why do we want to be that person? Because if we love someone, we want to be in a relationship with them. We'd rather them deal with those things with us there, loving them and helping them, than, it seems unloving, right, when we say it like this, look, you go out and deal with that by yourself. As soon as you can say it in a more palatable way, then I'll love you. Then I'll be with you. Right, if we were perfect, we want to be there in the storm of it because we love them. So again, parallel relationship. It's not a perfect parallel. It's not a perfect metaphor. But now let's move to our relationship with God where, shocker, he is perfect, right? He's not bound by sin. He's not bound by shame. He's not bound by fear and insecurity. And so because they have a posture of lament, they're saying these things, they're lamenting these things in relationship with him. It's, they're not yelling at a far-off God. Uh, I can't remember what verse it is. Verse 4, maybe? Um, yeah, verse 4. You are my king. You're not just a king. You're not just a God. You're not just a supreme power in the universe somewhere that's doing something here. You are my God. You are my king. You are my supreme power that is for me in every circumstance. And so that means I can come to you and say, God, this is terrible. Why? Because I'm saying that in relationship. I'm saying, God, I want to know. I want the answer, but I'm so frustrated. And God being perfect and full of love and full of mercy says, son, daughter, I love you. Let's talk. Let's, let's feel this out. The other side of this is God already knows, I think it's Psalm 139 and about a million other places in the Bible teaches, God actually already knows the deepest, the deepest inclinations of your heart. God already knows the deepest wonderings and strayings. God already knows that place in your heart that you've yelled at him and said, God, it feels like you're not good anymore. God's heard that already before we've spoke it. And so theologically, emotionally, intellectually, we have to deal with that and say, if God already knows what I'm feeling, there becomes a point where it becomes withholding becomes lying to say, no, God, I, we're cool. 
The suffering is terrible. Um, this, this terrible tragedy happened, but no, we're cool. We don't want to upset the balance of things. And God is saying, dude, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. Speak to me. I think that's a big, po- that, that masculine word, I think that's a big portion of this psalm is their openness and honesty in relationship. So there's this safety in that relationship that it provides, right? Um, again, they say, th- they say crazy stuff. When you think about the context of who they were and what they've seen and what they've felt, God, you've disgraced us. You've made us a laughingstock. The whole, you sold your people for a trifle, not demanding any high price of them. That's insane. I'll be honest, I'm not where they are. Um, I don't think I could say that, given the situation they were in. But I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to become confident enough in my relationship with God um, that I can say those things. And by, by, the, by nothing but the Holy Spirit's grace, that's happening slowly and painfully. And here's, I hope this is helpful for you, is really helpful for me. Here's where that tide turned in actually wanting to be open and honest, wanting to present these things to God. The question that was asked of me is, do you believe that God is a father or do you believe that he is your father? There's a subtle difference, and we all say it, oh yeah, God the Father, he's sort of our dad or whatever. But to truly believe it, inspect yourself. Ask yourself the tough questions when you're in that place of needing to lament and we're afraid. Ask the question, why? Why are we afraid? Why do we not think we can say that thing? It might be because we're still learning that God is not just a father, but he is your father. He is your perfect father. He is your good father. He is he is the picture of fatherhood perfectly for you. And he wants to be in that relationship with you. And so part of this lament piece is helpful because it takes these theologies, right? God as a father actually applies them in the deepest, darkest places of our hearts. So let's look at um, the the posture of lament as being dependent. So the posture of lament is intellectually and emotionally honest. The posture of lament finds its basis in relationship, and the posture of lament is one of dependence. So let's look at Psalm 44, verse... uh, Actually, let's not look at that yet. Just kidding. Um, So we're going to look at verse 22. Psalm 44, verse 22 says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Have you guys heard that line before? For your sake, we're killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Does that sound familiar to some of us, right? Uh, It's, I think it's probably familiar because Paul quotes it in Romans 8. 
that beautiful, I think it's one of the most beautiful chapters in all of scripture, Romans 8. Uh, go read it today if you haven't read it in a while. Um, it's, it's this place where Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This is a church of people who are literally like being beheaded because of their faith. This is a church suffering greatly. This is, this is a church that's seen hard things in their community, that's felt and experienced firsthand hard, hard things in their community. And I can imagine the question in that community is, this seems to be going really bad for us. God doesn't, it's, it's hard to objectively say, or sorry, subjectively say, God is with us when your friend is beheaded in the street because he wouldn't deny Jesus. That's a hard place to be. And so, so Rome is in this, this place of, has God abandoned us? Has, will God abandon us? Um, for, they're saying, for your sake. It seems like we're being killed all day, every day. What is happening? Are you going to leave us? In Psalm 44, the sons of Korah are going, God, you're, you've, it seems like you've abandoned us. It seems like you're not with us. Are you going to leave us? Are you going to forsake us? Is this the end? And Paul, Paul's answer in Romans 8 is no. Just read uh, Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 35. I'd love to hear the, uh, the rustle of your Bible pages or the scrolling of your Bible app. Um, Psalm, or sorry, Romans 8. 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when the sons of Korah say, all this has come upon us and we've not turned away from you, when they say, this is all happening and we're in this uncomfortable dissonance that is soul-crushing and we're clinging to you, this, this is why. We cling to God in the midst of not understanding, not knowing, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of dissonance and hardship because we are, we're persuaded. Nothing in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Like we sang uh, just before we started this sermon. Um, the, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. We, we know God is, is going to ultimately be victorious. And so in the midst of suffering in the midst of this difficult lament of speaking the things that we don't want to say because we're afraid because we're <sighs> that's that's our place of rest 
in my frustration, in my grief, in your confusion, in your being so angry with God, you're ashamed to tell another human being how angry with God you are. Brother, sister, nothing in all creation will separate you from the love of God in Christ. So finally, we're gonna, we're gonna close with uh, this line that the, the psalmist writes, that he bows his belly to the dust. Um, so think with me again, putting ourselves in, in the shoes of what that actually is. This is a people that just said, God, you were good in the past. You did all these glorious things, and now terrible things have befallen us, and you haven't stopped them. You let them happen. We're angry and we're confused. We're going to cling to you in the midst of this, but we don't know what's going on. And then they say, literally, I'm going to put my nose in the dust. I'm going to bow my stomach to the dust. This is, if you were in a fight, that's the last place you would want to be. That is the place of defenselessness. To say, God, I am going like when, when, when the cops right, come in and arrest a man. That's what they want. They want his belly to the ground because he can't defend himself. He can't retaliate. Saying, I'm going to go down to the dust. I'm going to put myself intentionally in the most vulnerable position that I can. Because I trust you. In the midst of this dissonance, I will not intellectually become unfaithful. I will not emotionally become unfaithful. I'm not, I will not forsake this relationship. I will not pretend like this relationship isn't driven and sustained by you. And so I'm going to put my nose on the dirt. He says, I'm going down. Lord, rise up and save us. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ put himself in the most defenseless, the most vulnerable position imaginable. Though he was God, he became man and entered into a relationship with humanity, lived perfectly for them, loved them perfectly. And at the, the end of his life, he, he laments over the brokenness of the world, he, he asks his father, God, I don't understand. Is there any other way I can save these people that I love besides going to the cross? Is there any other way this can happen? And God says, no. And so he puts himself, uh, he, he puts his belly on the ground. He says, okay. He is silent before a jury that is lying about him. They're, they're saying false things about him, and he's silent, like a lamb to be slaughtered. He allows them to, to strip him bare, to beat him, to spit on him, to mock him with a crown of thorns. And then they hang him on a cross naked publicly. And in this moment, the, the, the wrath of God on, on sin and brokenness, on shame, on rebellion falls on him and it kills him. And then, then days later, he, he rises victoriously. We know that we can put ourselves in this place of defenselessness, in this place of vulnerability because Jesus has 
taken the, the crushing blow, as it were, from us. And so we trust. Say, Jesus has gone before me and taken every, every, uh, every ounce of the wrath of God against my sin that, would, that God would say, I'm going to crush him. Jesus has dealt, has dealt away with it. God, I trust you. And so in our lament, we say, God, this is, this is what I've seen. This is what I felt. God, this is what's happening now, and I'm not going to just put it away. I'm not going to just ignore it. God, this is wrong. And yes, we know theologically God already knows it's wrong, but we lament. We lament with a God who is lamenting with us over what is wrong. in the right posture. So our lament is honest. We're not gonna sugarcoat things. We're gonna say things the way that they are, honestly. We're going to be honest about the emotions that lament brings up in us. We're gonna present those emotions in a relational context, not as some out there God, but God who is my Father, and wants to hear from me. And then undergirding all of that, our lament, our saying, God, you've disgraced us, is in the context of, and I'm going to put myself on the dust. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to struggle out of this dissonance. I'm, going to, I'm just going to let the dissonance be and wait for you to heal it, wait for you to come and work in it. So we're going to take um, communion. You guys, the band, can, can come up and get, get set up. We're going to take communion. This is a representation of that, that story that we just told, told about Jesus.